live your life, boy. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Conspiracy Farm, where we don't start the conspiracies, we just add the water. And now, your host of the most state-of-the-art, most informed podcast on the interweb, I present to you, Pat Militage and Jeffrey Wilson. Ladies and gentlemen, are you ready for Yeah, rear naked choke of Cocker Spaniel, bro. You don't yeah, change, change the neighborhood up. Conspiracy Farm. Go. Check it out. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are back. Pat and I, a little bit of an absence, but uh, the Conspiracy Farm, another archive episode for the archives. And of course, riding shotgun with me is, of course, UFC Hall of Famer, trainer of champions, eater of worlds. And we're going to be talking about worlds tonight, extraterrestrial and terrestrial. Pat Milicic, how are you doing today, sir? I'm doing great. We have had a long hiatus, Jeffrey. A little bit of a hiatus, and we're going to uh, we're going to do a little pre-show maybe and kind of discuss a little bit where we've been. And the movie coming out this fall, the second making of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest yeah. that we both starred in. <laughs> yes, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and I'm just really, really stoked to have this guest on today. We've kind of been in correspondence for a few months now. I asked him quite a while ago to be on and he was, you know, responded very quickly. And I was quite impressed with that because he's got a new book out and um, we're going to talk all about it. His name is Dr. Avi Loeb. He is an astronomer, astrophysicist, cosmologist, and a professor of science at Harvard University and an author of a great many of papers. But his most recent book, like I spoke of, is Extraterrestrial, the First Sign of Intelligent Life Beyond Earth. Dr. Avi Loeb has taken some time to talk to us today. How are you, sir? Very well, thank you. And in fact, um, just like good wine, uh, the more we wait, the better the conversation will be because it just gets uh, better and better, this subject, over time. Yes, without a doubt. And I feel like I've talked to you already because like anytime I do these kind of shows or any show, you know, the show research and the show prep, I go pretty deep. So I've I've watched your face and heard you many and many hours, but I'm just absolutely stoked to, to have you on to talk to you. Um, I mean, just kind of for starters, man, it's... I think all of us kind of look up in the sky, you know, whether you're camping and there's not a lot of light pollution, you see the stars and we just wonder. There's so many questions, you know, for every answer we get, there's just more questions. So how did a young Dr. Avi Loeb get himself into something as, as amazing as astronomy, astrophysics, uh, astrophysics and physics and cosmology? Well, it was by chance. I grew up on a farm. I used to collect eggs every afternoon and uh, I didn't aspire to become a physicist. Uh, I, I was interested in philosophy and used to drive a tractor to the hills of the village and read philosophy books. And uh, I was born in Israel where uh, there is an obligatory military service at age 18. And uh, I was uh, recruited to a program that allowed me to pursue physics. And that was closer to philosophy than running in the fields with a gun attached to my back. And so I did that. And then uh, I was offered the fellowship at Princeton under the condition that I'll switch to astrophysics. So, well, that was an offer that I couldn't refuse, just like in The Godfather, you know, it's an offer <laughs> I can say no to. Uh, and then uh, I was offered a, a, a faculty position at Harvard that I couldn't refuse to. And by the time I got tenured, I realized that even though it was an arranged marriage, I'm actually married to my true love because <laughs> there are some fundamental questions that in um, about the universe that uh, we can address scientifically. Uh, and uh, I'm very glad to have this position that allows me to do that. And I basically haven't changed much since my childhood. If you ask people that know me, I'm still the same kid. And mm -hmm. just if I had to frame it, I would say, you know, we are born into this world like actors put on a stage and uh, we don't know what the play is about. Nobody tells us. So then uh, the first thing to do is check the stage. And it looks like the stage is huge. 
uh, it's the size of the universe. It's 10 to the power 26 times bigger than our body. And the, the other thing we notice as scientists is uh, the play has been going on for 13.8 billion years since the Big Bang. Mm-hmm. So we just came at the end. How dare we think that the play is about us, like most people do? You know, they think, oh, we are at the center. And uh, so the, the first thing you get is a sense of modesty. And moreover, it d- drives me at least to ask other other actors out there that we can ask what the play is about. Perhaps they have a better idea. Well, and it's, it's something that you've, you've touched on in a lot of your interviews is that modesty, that humility in the face of this infinite universe. You know, you, you ascribe to that Copernican principle of, you know, we're not really that special necessarily. Talk to us a little bit about, A, going into, you know, a lot of times scientists, they're, they create those echo chambers. They don't want to think outside of this conventional thought or this organized narrative. You have been open-minded enough. Obviously, we're going to get into a more and more later to, to entertain the possibility of things outside of our normal understanding. But part of that is your, your, your view of, of, of modesty and humility in the face of this infinite universe. Right. So one thing I noticed while practicing physics and astronomy is that a lot of scientists use science as a sandbox by which they uh, do uh, mathematical virtuosity and uh, demonstrate how smart they are. And uh, as a result, you know, they pursue uh, a better image of themselves so that they can get more honors, awards, recognition. And that to me looks like, I mean, even though it might sound as if, oh, it's not such a terrible thing because still they're doing science. The problem is if you are motivated by that, you would try not to take risks so that you will not, your image will not be damaged by making mistakes. You will not innovate as much. You will uh, not uh, test your predictions uh, by experiments. You will retreat to a corner that experiments cannot reach. Uh, you know, there is this saying that if you place your evidence far away, you can lie because uh, nobody mm-hmm. would be able to reach it. And so by working on subjects that have no experimental tests, you can demonstrate how smart you are without risking that you are wrong. And that's what a lot of theoretical physicists are doing. And to me, it's not really what science is about. Science is a dialogue with nature. You are supposed to listen to nature. And when something unusual shows up, something that doesn't line up with what you expected, an anomaly shows up, it's actually an opportunity to learn something new. So even, you know, if it proves your, uh, if, if you are wrong about your preconceptions, and it's actually very thrilling, you know, to find, for example, that the it's not that, the the sun moves around the earth but the earth moves around the sun even though you see the sun moving in the sky you know that's the natural thing to think and it's natural to think that we are at the center of the world my daughters thought that they are at the center of the world that they are the smartest until they went to the kindergarten <laughs> uh, and so in a way uh, uh, getting a better perspective about reality is possible only when you pay attention to evidence and you are guided by it rather than your ego And uh, it's difficult for a lot of people to do that. Many people just prefer to sit in their comfort zone and not to believe that they're missing something. But when you look at kids, they're taking an object and turning it around and you think that they're playing with it, but they're not really playing. They're studying the object. It's a way of learning about the object by turning it around, by, you know, and the adults just look at the object from one direction and say, I pretty much know what's on the other side of the object. I don't need to waste time and energy to do that. And I don't want to ask questions about it. And that is the mistake that prevents discoveries, because you find something new only if you allow yourself to be wrong. 
Without a doubt. And it goes back to, you know, like you, you know, mentioned, you know, Galileo recognizing that, you know, this is a heliocentric, you know, solar system as opposed to geocentric. And it always upsets this conventional model. And like, you know, in, in your days, in our days, your peers, you know, often frown upon. I'm into like ancient civilizations and things like that. You know, Graham Hancock, and a lot of this research upsets the conventional model of who, where we are and who, where we came from as human beings. And, you know, astrophysics is definitely still the same. There's people who spent their life's work and their reputation kind of reaffirming and echoing these conventional models. And then individuals like yourself come along and think, obviously, outside the box. What are some of the reasons, and maybe you kind of just alluded to it, to this resistance to acknowledging things outside of these these preconceived notions we have about whether it's human history or the existence of extraterrestrials? Well, I think the, the biggest reason is uh, humans' ego. I mean, the fact that they want to feel important, privileged, unique, and, uh, you know, that drives the worst things that you find in history. You know, it drives people trying to feel superior relative to each other, racism. It, you know, it fuels uh, confrontations throughout history. All of the negative things uh, that you find in human history stem from... Um, an egocentric uh, point of view where you're trying to feel that you're more powerful than you actually are. If you look at the universe, you know, where really, uh, you know, our life is really not very significant. We shouldn't really think so highly about ourselves. That's, you know, that's really important. But the other thing I wanted to say is, um, you know, if, if you don't look through the windows of your home, if you close the curtains and say, you know, I am the smartest, it doesn't mean that you don't have neighbors that are smarter than you are. It just maintains your ignorance. And you can be illusioned that there is nothing out there. But guess what? One day someone will knock on your door. And uh, the reality of whether we have smarter kids on our block is independent of whether we keep our ignorance. So my point is quite simple. The public is has really its heart in the right place. The public is curious about the question, are we alone? Are we the smartest kid on the block? Public wants to know. And then you have the scientific mainstream that is resisting, pushing back any discussion about interpreting anomalies like the ones associated with Oumuamua uh, in the context of technological equipment that came from another civilization. Just pushing back on it and you may ask why, and one uh, reason we already mentioned, the fact that people prefer to stay in their comfort zone and are driven by their ego, prefer to believe that they are unique, privileged, and so forth. But the second is that um, they see the public's interest in unidentified flying objects, in science fiction, and they say, no, science is elevated. It's on a pedestal. You know, we want to do things differently than a, a person without scientific training is doing it. And my point is exactly the opposite. You know, science is a way of life and we should converse with the public and reflect the interests of the public. You know, in the academic, academic world, we're not supposed to work on questions like how many angels sit on the tip of a pin. I mean, who, who cares? Like even a question of what's most of the matter in the universe, which you think is very fundamental, it's called dark matter. We don't know what it is. And hundreds of millions of dollars are sent in the direction of experiments that are trying to find this dark matter, even that would have zero impact on our daily lives. You know, if the dark matter is an axion, weakly interacting mass particle, you know, a person in the street wouldn't care less. It wouldn't affect our life. But if an object is one object, I'm not talking about many, but one object is of extraterrestrial origin, of a 
some technological civilization beyond us, then that would have a huge impact on human history because it will change our perspective about our place. Just like the psychological shock that my daughters had in the kindergarten. <laughs> uh, and it will change religious beliefs. And So how dare we, the scientific community, ridicule this subject, dismiss it, push it to the side, and at the same time work on esoteric questions like extra dimensions, multiverse, as if they are part of the mainstream. Yeah. Um, can I, I wanted to ask you one question is, you know, I'm, I'm much more well-versed in, in the history of banking and monetary systems than I am in astrophysics. But it seems to me across the board, education and, and the history that we've been taught and many, many other things, I think, sure, some out of ego, but much out of suppression to suppress our understanding of what's really going on around us. Right. And I would echo that and say, you know, if you look at the history, for example, a person like Socrates, he was an ancient Greek philosopher, one of the founders of, of uh, philosophy, the way we think of it. You know, he argued that you should question authority, you should ask uh, fundamental, you know, through dialogues. And uh, he was accused by the Athenian society as uh, corrupting the youth, as believing that are different than theirs and he was forced to to drink poison and if he were living today he would have been cancelled on the Athenian social media (laughs) (laughs) you know and and ridiculed and um, you know so present day cancelling is sort of similar to giving someone a poison Um, and this you know we can see also what happened to Galileo that was put in house arrest I mean, I was put in house arrest, but because of the pandemic, nobody. uh, 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 And then you you do find a lot of examples uh, of situations where people that we regard very highly that advanced our knowledge. And by the way, I think science is a sign of intelligence because uh, any civilization that is guided by the principles of science should be regarded as intelligent. And these principles are cooperating, first of all. So the fact that humans are not cooperating, nations are not cooperating, is a sign of non-intelligence. So cooperation and sharing of evidence-based knowledge. That is the foundation of science. Evidence-based, not what we think in our imagination, but based on feedback from reality and sharing it so that everyone is on the same page and cooperating, not fighting each other, not trying to feel superior relative to each other. That's not a sign of intelligence. Well, and I was basically going to very ask us a very similar question, but piggybacking on that or just kind of echoing Champ's sentiments here, that's what I was... Do you think this is a, a willful suppression and cover-up of whether it's the origin of human history or, or the existence of extraterrestrials, or is it just people... Is it is it organized? Is this suppression organized or is this just kind of accidental? Well, we don't have enough evidence yet for this or that because I think the evidence is, whether it's extraterrestrials or the origins of human history, going back to studying ancient civilizations, I, it seems to me the evidence is there, but there's this concerted effort to keep it away from us, whether it's throughout history, the priest class or the scientist or the government, etc. Yeah, well, I think that there is a taboo on discussing this subject and then there is a psychological barrier to government officials uh, military personnel speaking about it because they're worried that others will call them crazy or so that's why the subject was suppressed but it was not organized in the sense of the government knowing something that they want to suppress 
the public from knowing it because I, I don't think the government is competent enough to keep uh, a secret <laughs> that you. way. But I do think that society as a whole can create an atmosphere. Someone asked me, you know, how long can humans ignore evidence for extraterrestrial intelligence? And I said, in principle, forever. You know, if humans choose not to pay attention to facts and just always maintain their convictions, they can remain ignorant forever. Uh, I mean, animals do not know a lot. You know, the dinosaurs ate grass. They were very uh, arrogant. You know, they, they thought highly of themselves because they had huge bodies. And then guess what? 66 million years ago, a giant rock the size of Manhattan Island hit the ground and tarnished their ego trip abruptly. And uh, <laughs> that shows you that looking at the sky is sometimes beneficial. Without a doubt. What it is, the evidence seems so, again, just looking at the stars, looking up at the sky, each star is a potential sun that has potential planets around it. So, whether I mean, the odds of, of us being the only ones are just absurd. So speak to that a little bit. I mean, whether it's like Drake's equation, um, how is it possible that we're the only ones? Yeah, so that's an excellent question. And now we know more than we knew before. And I have actually a textbook coming out uh, in a week at the end of June uh, that is called Life in the Cosmos, more than a thousand pages summarizing what we know. And one of the things we've learned is from the Kepler satellite that a substantial fraction of all the sun-like stars, stars that look like the sun, maybe a, a quarter to half of them, have a planet the size of the Earth, roughly at the same separation. And so that means not only we are not at the center of the universe, but also what we find in our backyard, the Earth-Sun system, is very common. Uh, we are not privileged. Once again, we get this message. You are not special. <laughs> Stop thinking that you are special. Um, and, uh, uh, and then uh, that means that in the Milky Way galaxy, our own galaxy alone, there are tens of billions of other Earth-Sun systems. And if you imagine the entire universe, the observable volume of the universe, there are more systems uh, like Earth than there are grains of sand on all beaches on Earth. So just think about it. How can we be arrogant uh, uh, if we conquer a piece of land on Earth or if we own a real estate, you know, even the wealthiest person owns some, some real estate on Earth. It's just like an ant hugging a single grain of sand on the landscape of a huge Wow. <laughs> very impressive. Um, so I would say it's very likely that not only that we are just like ants on the pavement, you know, on the sidewalk, uh, uh, that there are many like us. But more importantly, there were many like us before us, because most of the stars from billions of years before the sun. So, right. you know, and some of these stars died by now. So many of those civilizations are not around anymore. But if they sent out equipment, just like Voyager or new horizons that we we are sending out of the solar system. That equipment may still be out there, and it's just like finding plastic bottles on the surface of of the ocean that yeah. accumulating over time. Well, and, and a perfect example is um, you know us the, the understanding of Proxima Centauri and the the celestial body or the planet that's Proxima B, which orbits that. Talk to us a little bit about that. And I find it fascinating because when we think about extraterrestrial life, we, we sometimes think it's like us. But you were speaking in an in a interview about how their vision would be based off just infrared as opposed to our being able to see the light spectrum stuck. Talk to us a little bit about uh, Proxima Centauri and Proxima B and the life forms that are on there. Right. So Proxima Centauri is the nearest star to the sun. And uh, it it's about 12% of the mass of the sun. So most of the stars are actually 
smaller than the sun and uh, they are fainter and they would live much longer. Uh, they would live for 10 trillion years, about a thousand times longer than the sun, the smallest wow. stars. But at any event, they are cooler. Uh, and uh, Proxima Centauri is um, twice cooler than the sun on, on its surface and therefore it emits mostly infrared radiation. And uh, it turns out that there is a planet in the habitable zone around it such that it's 20 times closer than the Earth is from the sun and therefore it has roughly the same surface temperature as the Earth. But because it's so close to the star, uh, it's tidally locked. Uh, gravity keeps it facing with one side the star at all times. So it has a permanent day side and a permanent night side. And my daughters said that if we ever go there, they want to get a house on the strip that separates these two sides because you can sit on the porch and see the sunset forever. The sun never <laughs> sets on that nice, strip. Nice. Uh, permanent day side, permanent night side. And uh, of course, you know, like two weeks ago, I wrote a paper with a student from Stanford, Elisa Tabor, where we uh, suggested that if there are any uh, there, there are any aliens on that planet, they might want to illuminate the night side, the permanent night side, or warm it up. And we could search for artificial lights, for city lights on the night side. And that would be something we can do with the James Webb Space Telescope that is about to be launched at the end of this year. So, you know, we can search for artificial lights. That's an interesting point. But if there are any creatures on the day side, they should have infrared eyes. And uh, I asked students in my class whether they know of any animal uh, that has infrared eyes. And they mentioned one of them found a, a, an image of a shrimp. And the eyes look like ping pong balls connected with cords to the head. That shrimp looked like an alien to me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, before we move into Amuamua, just uh, as somebody you had mentioned in, in previous interviews um, who was a victim of suppression, tell us a little, about, a, bit, a little bit about who is Giordano Bruno. Right. So Giordano Bruno, he wasn't a nice paper, a lot, a person. A lot of people uh, didn't like him personally. Um, but um, he basically said that other stars resemble the sun, uh, which is a true statement. Uh, and that uh, therefore they may have planets like the Earth next to them. Again, a true statement. And therefore, those planets may have life on them. We don't know for sure, but it sounds like reasonable, a reasonable statement. But back uh, a few centuries ago, that was regarded as heresy by the church. And uh, the reason it was denounced by the church is because if you have life on those planets, and the, that life form uh, sinned, uh, then you need Christ to visit those planets to save those souls that are on these planets. Right, and, right. and then you need multiple copies of, of Christ and you need billions of copies of Christ. That didn't make much sense to the church. And so they burned the guy on the stake. I mean, they basically took Giordano Bruno, put him on a, a piece of wood and, and burned him. Uh, and uh, uh, so... That's a lesson to be learned that, um, you know, uh, if you express uh, strong opinions ahead of your time, you might risk uh, <laughs> your life. Now, I, I'm not claiming that nowadays things like that uh, would happen. Uh, when I spoke to uh, religious people in different religions, um, you know, Christianity or Judaism, they tell me that um, they're open-minded to the possibility that there is life out there that is intelligent. In fact, my book was 
on the front page of a, a Jewish Orthodox a magazine in New York City called Ami. Uh, and uh, when a colleague of mine at uh, Harvard, Stephen Greenblatt, uh, noticed that, he said, well, it looks like the Orthodox uh, community is more open-minded to the possibility of intelligent life out there than uh, your fellow scientists. Well, it seems like some are more receptive than others. We were just having a conversation before we went on air to certain religious orthodoxy can keep almost like what we were talking about, very close-minded, in the box, and anything outside of that is, like you said back in the day, it was considered heresy, but some people are still just not willing to accept that. And I, I wanted to ask him about, you know, in terms of Christ and other religions, uh, Judaism and, and Islam and everything, um, what are your thoughts on a creator? Because, you know, this vastness of space, all, all these different suns, the potential for much life, you know what? What are you? Because you're you're very highly intelligent. You're very educated on the subject. Some people seem to get educated out of the belief of a creator. Others seem to be um, the, the more intelligence and the more research they do. It almost proves that there has to be a creator. Well, I'll tell you uh, first that um, the scientific story of how the universe uh, came to exist starts in the Big Bang. Yes. So you know Albert Einstein. Uh, wanted the universe to have existed forever, but he wrote down his equations of gravity. Turns out that uh, there is only a solution that starts from a big bang or a solution that ends up in a big crunch, uh, but there is no stable solution to his equations that can stay forever. Doesn't say much about the blueprint that was designed by an architect that made the building uh, the way it looks. and. Uh, any purpose that uh, the building is serving. That goes beyond science, and that can be called metaphysics, the things that go beyond the, the physical reality, and I think that's the realm of philosophy and theology and religion. But, uh, uh, of course, if religion uh, attempts to make statements about the physical reality, for example, uh, the sun, the planets around the sun, the planets elsewhere, and so forth, then it runs into the risk of being confronted by science. So I think there is a lot of room, in fact, more room uh, in metaphysics than in physics. And um, therefore, religion could be complementary to science. And um, a, a scientist, a, a, an excellent scientist, could also believe in, in things beyond the physical reality. Without a doubt. Well, and I found it very fascinating. I'm sure you've heard and people discuss the possibility of this, our lives being a simulation, if you will. And you had mentioned that there are certain scientists that have created a small universe, if you will, in a lab. And this, our lives could potentially be just a macro version of some quote unquote alien scientist that created this universe. Yeah, so things that we attribute to God um, in religion, uh, such as creating life in the first place and uh, possibly creating the universe, you know, these are things that perhaps a, a sufficiently advanced technology will be able to do. Uh, for example, we now have laboratory experiments that some people are doing trying to create synthetic life out of a soup of chemicals in the laboratory. And if that's successful, then, you know, that's one of the qualities that we assign to God, making life out of nothing. Um, and then, um, in principle, if we have a theory that unifies gravity, Einstein's gravity with quantum mechanics, we might be able to design an experiment that will create a baby universe 
And then uh, you can imagine us being the creator of everything inside that universe. So what I'm saying is um, a very advanced science and technology could be an approximation to God. Wow, that's, that's so heavy. I mean, it's just, it just makes your brain hurt. But the reason for the season, sir, you made history on uh, October 19th. 2017, an object by the name of Oumuamua was found and tracked through a Hawaiian telescope, if I'm correct. Talk to us about that momentous day, what exactly Oumuamua is, and how you are so convinced that it isn't something of this of this uh, solar system, if you will, and it is something interstellar. Well, uh, Oumuamua was the first object that came from outside the solar system that we noticed close to Earth. Uh, it's sort of like finding an object in your backyard that came from the street. Uh, it saves you the trip. You don't need to go to the street to figure out what's going on out there. And uh, at first, astronomers thought, oh, it must be a rock that came from another star, uh, just like the rocks we have in the solar system. Uh, and we knew that it came from far away because it was moving very fast relative to the sun. So it could not have been bound gravitationally to the sun. Uh, but as data was collected about this object, it looked very weird on many counts. Uh, for example, uh, it reflected sunlight. And as it was tumbling uh, every eight hours, the amount of light that it reflected changed by a factor of 10. And that meant a very extreme shape, most likely flat, pancake shape. And then it exhibited an excess push away from the sun. Uh, but it didn't show any cometary tail. There was no gas or dust surrounding it, meaning that there couldn't have been a rocket effect, something pushing it, uh, except for the sunlight that reflected off it. And in order for sunlight to push it, it needed to be very thin, sort of like a sail. Mm -hmm. But nature doesn't make sails. So I wrote that in a scientific paper and suggested that maybe it's a technological artifact. And Turns out that in September 2020, there was another object found that didn't have a cometary tail and showed a push away from the sun by reflecting sunlight. And it was discovered by the same telescope in Hawaii. And the astronomers that discovered it realized, oh, it's actually a rocket booster that was launched in 1966 in a mission to the moon. And uh, we know that the walls of that rocket booster were very thin, and that's why it had a large area for its mass, so it could have been pushed just by reflecting sunlight. We know that we produced this object. It's artificial. The object's name is 2020SO. And uh, the question is, who produced Oumuamua? And where, if you speculate, where did Oumuamua come from? What are you thinking it is? That's one of the other peculiar facts about it, that uh, it um, started in uh, a local parking lot uh, of the Milky Way galaxy. That's called the mm -hmm. local standard of rest, which is the frame that you get to when you average the motions of all the stars in the vicinity of the sun. And only one in 500 stars is so much at rest in the local standard of rest, as Oumuamua was. So it was very special. And one way to think of it, maybe the people that designed it, or, or whatever, whoever designed it or sent it, didn't want to know where it was sent from, and therefore placed it in that special frame. And uh, I came to think about this um, recently, because uh, also the fact that we discovered this object was surprising in the first place, because uh, 
a decade earlier, I wrote a paper where we forecasted how many rocks we should expect from other stars visiting the solar system. And we estimated that based on what we know about the solar system, that there shouldn't be any detected by the Pan-STARRS telescope in Hawaii. And the fact that we detected one means that there is a huge abundance of those things. And uh, assuming that they are moving on random trajectories in different directions and so forth. However, you need much fewer objects if they serve a purpose. You know, if they are purposely probing the inner mm -hmm. region of the solar system. And the reason I came to think about it is because of the Pentagon report. In fact, I wrote a Scientific American article uh, yesterday about it, um, saying that um, if Oumuamua was not a light sail, but it was thin and flat because it was a receiver that uh, was communicating, trying to get transmissions from probes that were sprinkled on Earth a long time before that, then, you know, this receiver was a very special object. It serves a purpose, and therefore you don't need as many as, uh, as the number of rocks that are completely random and do not serve any purpose. You just need to send one in the right direction at, at any given time that you want to, to get those transmissions. And um, so I wrote a Scientific American essay say, suggesting that maybe there is a connection between the unidentified aerial phenomena that are being discussed these days in Washington, D.C., by serious people, I should say, uh, people that belong to uh, the National um, uh, Security Administration and the politicians at the highest levels, including former President Obama, that speak about, about these objects as being real. Uh, so perhaps there is a connection between these, which may serve as probes, and Oumuamua coming along, appearing to be very unusual, and basically getting some data from them. Well, and this, I mean, obviously this is, as recorded, one of the first, but I heard you mention another similar one, Borisov. What's the difference between an Oumuamua and a Borisov? Yeah, Borisov was the second uh, interstellar object that we found, the second one that came from outside the solar system. It was discovered by a Russian amateur astronomer named Gennady Borisov in 2019. And uh, two years after um, Oumuamua was discovered, this one looked just like a comet. It had a beautiful cometary tail looking just like the icy rocks that we have seen before in the solar system. And so my colleagues came to me and said, well, this one looks natural, and I agreed. And they said, doesn't it convince you that Oumuamua was also of natural origin? And I said, well, if you find a plastic bottle on the beach, and later you find a lot of rocks, it doesn't make the plastic bottle a rock. So uh, the point is that it makes Oumuamua even stranger, uh, because why would you have an object that looks so different? Wow. Fascinating stuff. Well, and as you mentioned, and this is, I don't know if you're familiar with the term soft disclosure as it relates to UFOs and extraterrestrials. For me, the last few years, there's just been more, not just conversation like late night radio shows. We're getting like Navy videos and Pentagon videos corroborating the existence of these things. So that in, in tandem with this report that you mentioned, this Pentagon report that's coming out, what's going on? What are they, are they going to tell us that there's extraterrestrials? Are they going to say this is some back-engineered Chinese or Russian tech? I mean, what, what's, what's in this report as you, in, your, in your mind? 
Well, I haven't seen the report, obviously, but I, based on the leaks that came out over recent weeks um, that I followed, um, I think that it would say that some of the objects are real. And as I mentioned before, it's enough to find one object of extraterrestrial origin. So if some of the objects are real, then that's a very significant statement because at first you might wonder maybe it's a smudge on the camera or some uh, uh, hallucination or, or illusions of the pilots that report about it. But if they detect it in multiple instruments like infrared cameras, radar systems and optical cameras and, and a lot of pilots seeing the same thing independently, then it argues that the objects are real. And perhaps, you know, I think that there must be much more data than the government will release. And the reason the government will not release most of the data is because it will expose, if they were to release it, it would expose the array of sensors that the government is using to monitor the sky. And we don't want adversaries, you know, other nations to know exactly what kind of sensors we have. Sure. And so most of the data will not be released because of that reason. Uh, mm. But nevertheless, the fact that you hear high-level officials like um, former CIA directors saying, you know, these are real objects and we have to take them seriously, that, that's a very significant statement because sure. they wouldn't make that statement if these objects were not only real but belonged to other nations because then they would become a matter of national security and if the U.S. knows about objects that are used for espionage, for example, the U.S. government will do the right thing without telling the public. I mean, there is no reason to disclose the existence of objects that belong to other nations. Right. Because we want to know about these objects without telling other nations that we know about them. Sure. Uh, and so, um, so, to me, the fact that there will be some disclosure means that the objects that were identified as real that will be discussed are not human-made. Because mm. you know the limits of our technologies and these objects behaved in a way that does not match the limits of our technology, not that of other nations as well. And so then it leaves two options on the table. If you just think logically, there is the option that if these objects are real, they have to be natural, that produced by some natural phenomena in the atmosphere or um, some natural object that we have never recognized as behaving this way. Uh, or that they are extraterrestrial. And how can we figure it out? It's not a philosophical argument here that we have to discuss what other people say to us and so forth. Uh, I think we should just collect data on the sky, new data that is not coming from government uh, uh, sensors, because the subject at this point needs to move from the realm of uh, the talking points of uh, intelligence officials or politicians to be part of science. And in yeah, science, yeah. data can be open. And you can, no, there is no, uh, uh, the sky is not classified. There is no restriction on looking at the sky. Nobody tells you you are not allowed to look at the sky. So we can deploy state-of-the-art cameras and collect as much data as needed uh, in the same locations or in other locations to see if there are any unusual phenomena going on. And uh, this data will be open to the public because it's collected by instruments that do not belong to the government. So it's all open and it would be analyzed in a transparent way by scientists. And I think that's the, the perfect next step. Um, and I'm, I'm personally happy to participate, to engage in such a research program or to lead it. 
Well, and again, I'm, I co-host a show called The Conspiracy Farm, so my cynic ears go up. I mean, it's, even just the finding of a muamua, and then all this conversation from official uh, government officials talking about the possibility of these things being UFOs. Or it's just, it's just a crazy time to be alive. And something you've mentioned before, and I've always, we've been seeing these things since like the 30s or 40s, and it's always this blob or this dot of light. And I get it for 1940s, 50s, even 60s technology. It's 2021 now. These iPhones are taking amazing pictures. Why are we still seeing like blobs and these undiscernible? You know, I would think you would see something more clear than uh, what we saw before. For- what I should say, okay, two two points uh, here. One is um, uh, the the UFO phenomena. I mean, the the existence of UFOs is probably a mixed bag. Uh, me- most of the events that are reported or were reported in the past are probably explained by some mundane things like for example military equipment that the public is not aware of or some natural phenomena so we shouldn't always uh, hold all of the reports to the same standard because many of them you know were quite amateurish and even though we call all of them ufos or uap uh, it doesn't mean that they're of the same quality of, of data and uh, it doesn't mean that if one of them today appears to be uh, clearly a real object that all of them in the past were real objects. You know, it doesn't mean that. Right. Uh, but I do believe that the government has much better data that the, than is released to the public for the reasons that we talked about. And and if when you hear serious people like CIA, the former CIA directors, uh, director of national intelligence saying, uh, you know, we have to take it seriously, I pay a lot of attention because these people sure. had access to the full data set you know, the entire iceberg that we see the tip of. Yeah. As a result, as a scientist, it convinces me that further study is warranted. This is intriguing enough for the uh, for scientists to clear up the fog because uh, the, the worst situation that can, can happen is that uh, this report will leave uh, the nature of these objects uncertain, unclear, and the public will, and that will fuel speculations in the public yes. domain. And then the scientists will dismiss it. We already hear a lot of scientists dismissing it. And so if that's the case, it will never be clear. And, and this is an unhealthy situation. I think scientists have an obligation to clear up the fog and basically get more data, figure out what the nature of these objects is, if they're indeed real, and um, move on from there. You know, it's just like science found a solution to uh, the pandemic in the form of the mRNA vaccine. Uh, in much the same way, we can, by collecting evidence, we can figure out what these objects are. And I was going to ask you, I mean, and my speculation, you know, obviously it could be extraterrestrials, but I was wondering how, what were your thoughts on a lot of these being DARPA, possibly Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency type tech that we just haven't seen yet? Well, the government would know because they are in control of all these projects. And uh, the question of whether uh, the government is looking scientifically into the nature of these objects, I mean, it's possible. But um, I think that the science, uh, it's extremely important to have open data because then, uh, you know, people can scrutinize the data, analyze it in different ways. That's the way science is done. It has to be open. Uh, you yeah. never know. Some person somewhere will figure out from the data something that all the other experts did not realize. And if you keep the data uh, under restrictions and not 
many people see it, uh, you might be fooled. And uh, therefore, I think there is a qualitative change if new data is obtained such that none of it is classified and then it is subject to the scientific scrutiny and analysis that often accompanies science, then you know, I can imagine that within a few years, if this kind of research is funded and it's not ridiculed and it's, there is no taboo on it, that we, we might know the answer. We, we will know either you know, the objects are natural in origin or maybe not existence, existent, or they are extraterrestrial. And in that case, if they behave well uh, in excess of the technological limit that our equipment uh, is capable of, of accomplishing, then, um, then we will know that we are not the smartest kid on the block. <laughs> Well, and you kind of alluded to, sorry, champ, if you kind of alluded to this before, if they do confirm it, doctor, you know, the, the ramifications socially, religiously, philosophically, spiritually, I mean, are we, are we ready for that? Is it kind of, have they kind of slowly spoon fed us this so we could kind of prepare ourselves for this? Are we ready as a society? I don't believe in conspiracy, but I do believe that, um, it's not up to us. Reality is whatever it is, and uh, sometimes reality is shocking. I'll give you an example. In the context of physics, uh, uh, quantum mechanics was discovered a century ago, and now it's being used to in all the equipment that we use, in all the electronic devices, like the cell phone you're using. Quantum mechanics is really foundational for all the electronics that we use. And uh, even though it's so useful, uh, over the past century, there are some very deep questions about quantum mechanics that we don't fully understand, including how to interpret it, uh, because it's not intuitive. And that puts us in an uncomfortable position. And Einstein rejected the idea that quantum mechanics has spooky action at a distance. That's the way he called it. But experiments show that he was wrong, that it does have spooky action at a distance entanglement, uh, so to speak. And uh, the point is, nature doesn't really care whether we are comfortable with it or not. It's whatever it is. And we have to accept that. So, you know, if we have neighbors and we have neighbors that are smarter than we are, it will be to our benefit to gain that knowledge because then we behave in a way that accommodates that. And uh, for example, it can have positive implications because we'll feel that we are part of the human species and we should work together rather than fight each other if there is someone else out there. You know, that that's my hope. I'm an optimist. Uh, my hope is that, you know, we might behave more intelligently, you know, guided by science because we might want to be admitted to the club of intelligent civilizations if we are not intelligent enough right now and nobody, you know, they basically say, oh, they, they look like animals to us, you know, they, they are not particularly interesting, then we, we might uh, try to improve ourselves to gain some recognition. <laughs> but well, well, the somebody you worked for, you know, the President, President Reagan administration with SDI, the Strategic Defense Initiative, he kind of said that, you know, if we do recognize the extraterrestrials are out, out there, look how, how petty our differences will be, because like you said, we'll begin to work together once we actually see, you know, perspective-wise, like you said, we're not the only, only kid on the block. Champ, you were going to ask something? No, I, w I was going to ask, you know, years ago I was researching the ancient star maps. I had a friend who had, had taken me to a website and the origins, origins of man and Pleiades and, you know, all of these, all of these thoughts and, and research going through this. And then I think about the, the pyramids and 
are they much older than they tell us that they are? And then you fast forward to the creation of Space Force and all of these things, these pieces of the puzzle that come together. You know, it's, it's hard to deny that there has to be another level of intelligence out there because we can't even move one block of the pyramids and they came from 400, 400 kilometers away from a quarry. So it's, it's, to me, very obvious and very telling. Well, there is also the possibility that uh, maybe life was planted on Earth, that intelligent sure. life was not uh, a natural consequence of uh, a soup of chemicals that existed on earlier. Uh, all of these are possibilities, but, you know, uh, science should be guided by evidence, and the evidence is not fully uh, conclusive in this context. I think the easiest way for us to convince ourselves that other intelligent species are out there is by finding equipment. You know, we've been searching for radio signals that's not the best way because it's like trying to have a phone conversation. You need the counterpart to be alive uh, and uh, looking for relics, for equipment. You know, if we find that unidentified aerial phenomena are objects behaving in ways that we cannot reproduce with our technology, that would be pretty convincing. When you say possible... Uh, when you say we could have come from somewhere else outside of just a pile of ooze is that panspermia or are you i'm not sure if you're familiar with like the anunnaki or a specific intelligence that came down and kind of did some genetic splicing because i mean there is that there is that theory out there as well so when you say that were you speaking from a panspermia standpoint or possible intelligent life interference with who I'm speaking from the intelligent uh, possibility and uh, it's called directed uh, panspermia where uh, a species out there decides to plant the seeds mm -hmm. of intelligent species here on earth and of course one way to do it is with uh, equipment like a cubesat that has uh, an artificial intelligent uh, computer in it uh, and uh, a 3D printer, so that you send that into to a planet and use the raw materials in the planet to produce some form of, of life. Wow. Out of that. And that, you know, it, it doesn't need to be creatures that are doing that. Right. The world could be equipped. And by the way, I do think that we are most likely to meet equipment, to have contact with equipment rather than with living creatures, because travel through space takes a long time. And the only way to survive it is by building something that is sturdy out of, uh, and, and we now know that within a few decades, an artificial intelligence will likely supersede human abilities. And, yes. and uh, if we can do it, you know, uh, others that existed for a longer time could have done it by now. And we might be able to get a peek into our future by finding their equipment. Uh, my point is, for example, if we find more objects like Oumuamua with uh, uh, the Pan-STARRS telescope that discovered Oumuamua or with the next telescope that will be much more sensitive called the Vera Rubin Observatory that will start operations in two years in Chile, then uh, we can alert uh, ourselves a, a year in advance before it approaches us and send a spacecraft with a camera that will take a close-up photograph of it. And they say a picture is worth a thousand words. In my case, a picture is worth 66,000 words, the number of words in my book. I would need to write a book if we had a photograph that shows that this object is artificial. And then we can also land on it, just like OSIRIS-REx landed on the asteroid Bennu and collect a sample. Uh, and just imagine bringing a technology that is in our future to Earth uh, it would be just like playing with the features of a cell phone long before it's released to the public. So only you can sort of try. Wow. And wow. 
Well, that's very similar. I mean, what you said about running into equipment before actual beings, that's kind of what's happening in our solar system. If there is life on Mars, they're going to run into our rovers and curiosity and opportunity in the helicopter before right. they see us. So that's very fascinating. Um, I'm gonna, not going to keep you too much longer, but you know, as you obviously you know, continue to expand your mind and the possibilities, I found it very fascinating, this project that you're working with, the Star Shot Project. Please tell us about that. I find that absolutely amazing. Yeah, in uh, May 2015, um, a, a black limousine uh, parked in front of the Center for Astrophysics at Harvard. And out of it came uh, an entrepreneur from Silicon Valley named Yuri Milner. He came to my office, sat on the sofa, and asked me whether I'm willing to lead a project to visit the nearest star system uh, during his lifetime. And that meant within 20 years, because he's the same age as I am. Uh, and uh, I thought about it, it looked very challenging because the nearest star is four light years away. It takes light four years. So to get there in 20 years, you need to launch a spacecraft that moves at a fifth of the speed of light. And uh, that is a thousand times faster than all the spacecraft we have launched so far uh, with chemical rockets. And so uh, that's a major jump. And I told mm -hmm. him I have to think about it and then came up uh, after six months with a concept of a light sail being pushed by a very powerful laser beam. And uh, we announced this project in April 2016 in the company of Stephen Hawking in New York City. And uh, we are now working on testing that technology. There are three major components. One is the laser beam, making a coherent beam that is focused across a large distance. And the second is the sail, the light sail, making it very lightweight, um, about a gram or so. And the third component is communication. When the sail gets to four light years away, if it sends us back a picture uh, using a camera that is on board, uh, we want to be able to receive that uh, signal. And that's a big challenge across those large distances. Very, very fascinating. Wow. Champ, anything left for the good doctor before we let him go? Well, my brain is an egg that's been fully cooked. Thank yeah, you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Man, I thank you so, so very much for coming by and talking with us. I've, I've, even when I heard the Amuamua thing, I would, my brain was just blown because I've always just kind of been a space nerd, but that, not clearly near the level of yours. But I've always, like I said in the beginning, looked up. I, we can't be the only ones. What else is going on? Like, what's out there? And uh, this conversation has been awesome with uh, shedding some light on some of that. Any social networking you can throw out there that uh, people could follow you? Oh, that's right. You don't do the social networking. I don't have any uh, footprint on social media because I want to think independently and it saves me time. Uh, yeah, I, the only th uh, creatures I listen to are uh, the birds, the rabbits, <laughs> the ducks, uh, and the wild turkeys every morning at 5 a.m. when I jog. I, I yeah. so much listening to them, much more so than to people. Well, yeah, like on the Joe Rogan show, that's, that, that affords you a certain level of freedom because a lot of people are just way too caught up in numbers, likes, retweets, etc. Ladies and gentlemen, he is Dr. Avi Loeb. He is the author of Extraterrestrial, the first sign of intelligent life beyond Earth. I can't begin to thank you enough, sir. You are welcome back to the show anytime. Maybe if this... Uh, after this report and we find out what they say about possible extraterrestrial intelligence, I'd love to pick your brain on that. I'll be delighted to join you again anytime. Thank you, sir. Ladies and gentlemen, it has been Dr. Avi Loeb. Champ, it's good talking to you once again. Ladies and gentlemen, peace and so much love. Stay tuned. You know there will always be more.